third chapter. That'll be page 1054 if uh, you're reaching for a Bible there in the pews. And we'll be studying tonight from 1 Timothy, the third chapter. It's good to see the blue mist back with us. Uh, we missed you this morning. It's good that you're back. Uh, it's wonderful that they had the opportunity to go for the adults, feel all that made that available and possible for them. We truly thank you. Uh, it's a blessing for our kids, and they're a blessing to us. Uh, we're thankful that Rebecca Chapman asked for prayers of the church this morning uh, at the service that was conducted there with the retreat. And we love Rebecca, and we're thankful for her, for her heart, her tenderness to want to serve God. And let's continue to pray for her. Do keep in mind the prayer request forms. And, and I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you when I say this. I'm just trying to put it like it is. If you don't want people praying for you, you got to check out your humility gauge. Something's wrong if you don't want brothers and sisters in Christ praying for you. This is an opportunity to be able to say, I want hundreds of people to be praying for me over the next few weeks about whatever it is. Be sure and pick up one of those forms. They're on the Welcome Center, and if you need two or three forms, however many you need to fill out, if we could get those by next Sunday, it would help us. We can take them after that, but it would help us to get them as quickly as possible, and we'll look forward to having the opportunity for praying specifically for what each other have requested us to be mindful for in our prayers. So take advantage of that opportunity. What a wonderful opportunity we have in a church family to be able to encourage each other and to pray for each other. When we think about the design of the church, it's interesting to me, the passage that we began studying this morning in Philippians, I want to read for you Philippians, and if you have your Bibles, you may want to flip back to Philippians, the first chapter, the very first verse. When Paul begins his greeting to them, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. They were ones that wrote this book of Philippians. But notice how he addresses the church. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. He gives us a picture of the structure or the organization of the church. Bishops are mentioned there, also called in the scriptures elders or overseers or shepherds. But then he also mentions another office. He greets or addresses those that are bishops. He also greets and addresses those that are deacons. And then also all saints, all children of God. Tonight we're studying an office and it's important for all of us to recognize. I realize some of us have known this and understood this for years. But let's review just a few things quickly to make sure we all understand this. We're not talking about a way that man has come up with that says this would be a great way to organize a church. This is God's plan. When we speak of deacons, it is an office that God created. It's an office that God gave the name for those that would fulfill that office. The office of deacon means servant. But also when we go to 1 Timothy, the third chapter, we see that God also gives qualifications for the men that are to serve in this office. As we think about the opportunity that we have to put up names of men that we would recommend to serve in the office of deacon, surely it's important for us to stop and consider first what is it that God wants from these men. In other words, what are the qualifications that these men must have fulfilled in their life if they are to be qualified to serve in this capacity? Let's take some time tonight and then let's be prayerful as we make consideration to who these men will be. We're blessed in the Mount Juliet congregation with tremendous deacons. 
just this past week, uh, a gentleman called and said, I want you to tell me three reasons why the Mount Juliet Church of Christ is growing. One, we're in an area that's growing. It's so much easier to grow when the area around you is growing. The second thing that I mentioned to him, we have deacons that work. And then I emphasized to him. So I'm not talking about they just fill an office in an honorary way. We have men that go to work 365 days a year in the church. And anytime you have 30 or 40 or 50 men that are working, striving to carry out God's work, and they're striving to involve other people to carry out God's work, tremendous things happen in the life of a church. Friends, there's no magic the way we're going to reach this community. It's real simple. Individuals are going to talk with individuals about the Lord. Individuals are going to serve individuals. Those individuals that serve individuals are going to display the love of Jesus, and that's attractive. And when people see the love of Jesus, they're going to want to know more about it. When we have leaders that are servants, as we studied this morning, and they're helping us to also be servants, the result is contact in a positive way with the world. There's no magic formula. It's just following God's plan. What is it that these leaders must have in their life if they're to be qualified to lead in the Lord's church? Let's begin in verse 8. He says, likewise, because he has just given the qualifications for the elders in the third chapter, verses 1 through 7. And so in a similar manner, he now will lay out the qualifications for the deacons. He says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. Now, when he says must be, that ties in also with verse 2 when he speaks of elders, or he calls them here a bishop, then must be. That's how it's in a like manner. These are things that must be. It's not that you put a group of men together and collectively they fulfill all of these obligations. No, individually a man fulfills these qualifications. Now, to show you where some have gone with the authority of the scriptures today, there are some in the brotherhood that are very offended whenever we speak of these being qualifications. No, you see, this is just a story of how a man might look if he were going to fulfill this office. He doesn't literally have to have all of these things in his life. It's just that if he was a married man, he'd want to rule his house well. If that person was a man, he would want to do these things. You see how far we get off course whenever we stop allowing the Scriptures to be final authority. Here the Scriptures clearly says He must. Now we, in obedience to that, say the same thing as we are considering men to be deacons. Those men must have these qualifications. What are they? The first one He said was reverent. When we think about reverence, the old King James would say grave. The NIV would say worthy of respect. It's the idea of an individual that, that is honest and honorable, and because of that honesty, which by the way, in Philippians the fourth chapter, verse 8, that same Greek word is translated either honest or honorable, depending on what translation you're reading there. So this idea of, of an individual that lives an honest and an honorable life, and because of that, it is worthy of respect. 
If a man is going to go out and represent himself in this community as a deacon of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ, he ought to live an honest life. And because of that, it ought to bring respect to him. And then when people associate him with the church, there's immediate respect for the church. It's a sad thing if the leaders of a church go out in the community and they can't be respected. It sheds a sad light, a dim light upon the church itself. And so the very first place the Lord starts is what kind of man are you going to be? A person of integrity, a person that people can respect, whether you're in the church or outside the church, you're respected for the life that you live. The second thing he says is not double-tongued. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word is used. You know, the Indians would speak of the forked tongue. That is what we call today oftentimes hypocrisy, where you say one thing to one group of people and then you turn around and you say something else to someone else. We also can put gossiping under that, where we say one thing to someone's face and we go behind them and we say something else behind their back. We also can simply call it lies, where we tell one thing but then tell something different. There are many, many things that can fall under this category of the, the double-tongued. Now, if you're going to describe it as another translation does, in the positive sense, it's sincerity. You see, the idea of sincerity is oneness. In other words, when we speak, is our message one? Or do we have the double-tongued? And so whichever way you want to look at it, from the negative sense, don't be double-tongued. From the positive sense, be sincere. Say the right things. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy here is living in Ephesus. You remember what he said back to those same brethren in Ephesus in Ephesians, the fourth chapter in verse 15, where he says, speak the truth in love. You see, that's what a man that's going to be qualified to be a deacon, he's going to be an individual that speaks the truth. He's sincere. It's the same message day in and day out. He doesn't have to stop and calculate, what did I say last time? Because I want it to sound like the same thing this time. No, it was truth then, and he simply speaks it again and then what a blessing it is when it's spoken in love. Notice the third one. Not given to much wine. To have substance, to take over a man's life, is dangerous whether he is a leader in the church or not. How terrible it would be, though, if in fact he was a leader in the church. And so here, the qualifications of elders and deacons is the fact that they cannot be given to much wine. Notice as we look at the fourth one, not greedy for money. This is stated here of the deacons. It's stated just prior to the elders and also in Titus, the first chapter, it's stated again to the elders. It's one of the few that's stated all three times in all three texts. What is the danger for leaders to be greedy of money? The old King James says, uh, of filthy lucre. The idea of lucre is dishonest gain. In other words, where we would literally want to do something that was dishonest if, in fact, it was a financial profit to us. That man's not qualified to be a deacon if he would do that in his life. Why? Well, numerous reasons. It would create a bad reputation. People out in the community would see how he deals in business in a dishonest way, and that's the way they would begin to view the church if, in fact, he was a leader in the church. Now, that would be true also of individual members in the church. We need to remember that we represent Christ when we go out in the community. But also a leader that was greedy of money would be one that possibly is, would misuse the finances. Because after all, he's willing to misuse his faith 
because of his greed. He might misuse the Lord's money. He might steal from the Lord. But a third reason that this is so important, have you ever noticed that individuals that are truly greedy, that's all they think about? Have you ever noticed when someone is really after the almighty dollar where materialism rules their life, have you ever tried to plan something with them? They don't have time because they're out making money. And then after that job, they're somewhere else making money. And after that, they're somewhere else making money. It'd be impossible for a man to do his work in the church the way it needs to be done if he didn't have any time to give to the work of the kingdom. It takes a man that can reach a point in his life where he says, I'm content with what I have. I don't have to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I want to carve out time all during the week to serve God. What a blessing it is when a man is content and in his contentment, a part of that godliness, this great gain, is his love for serving in the Lord's kingdom. Let's read on now as we go to verse 9. We see a fifth thing as he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. I've heard someone say before, this is faith in its container. You see, the faith is mentioned there in verse 9, holding the mystery of faith. And the word mystery simply means that that was unknown, that was revealed through Jesus Christ is what's being referred to there. So we have the faith in Jesus Christ, but where is that faith? It's in a pure conscience. Now where does faith come from? Romans 10 and 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Men that are qualified to be deacons are men that have studied the Word of God and the Word of God has formed their faith. But now, you know, we use the adage sometimes, practice what you preach. Notice what this faith is held in. This faith is held in a pure conscience. What does that mean? He's describing an individual that does not live violating their conscience. Let's just say that, that you know that it's wrong to, to lie. But yet, in a certain situation, you were tempted to lie. Now, maybe the next day, maybe that evening, maybe immediately afterwards, maybe a week later, whenever your conscience begins to work on you, you say, wow, I shouldn't have done that. That's a pure conscience urging us to repent. If we don't repent, it's no longer pure. A man that's qualified to be a deacon is a man that has developed faith from the Word of God and he's holding that faith in a pure conscience. He's living it and if he ever violates it, it's pricked until he repents of it. He repents and it's pure again. Faith in its vessel. Faith in a pure man's heart. That's when he's qualified to be a deacon, or at least with this particular qualification. Now let's notice verse 10 as we consider the sixth qualification. But let these, now we mentioned this this morning, but let these, talking about these men, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. It's interesting there, the first and then statement. When we see first be tested or first be proved, in other words, there needs to be a recognizing and an evaluation, a test to say, let's consider these men. 
Let's not just assume because someone says, he's a good old boy. That's not qualification enough. Let's test them. Let's see. Do they really fulfill these qualifications? But notice it's then serve. Servanthood is a part of the qualifications. Is this man a servant? Now, not to re-preach this morning's lesson, but you remember what we learned about servanthood out of Philippians, the second chapter. The man has to have a mind like Christ and be formed like Christ in the sense that he is the shape of a servant and then submissive as Christ the servant was to his father. Our mind, our our shape, our servant's heart in life and our submission. When a man has proven these qualifications, when he has proven that he is a servant, then let him serve. Now I'm talking among what you and I would oftentimes call good congregations. If there's one of these ten qualifications that's oftentimes overlooked, it's this one. Friends, I've talked with many individuals, and you probably have too, where they're having some serious problems with a certain deacon. And when they go into depth talking about it, they say, well, we knew he really wasn't what he ought to be, but we just thought if we appointed him that that would really help him grow in the faith. I talked with a man one time, and, and a preacher, and he said, we have a real problem. He said, we have many of our deacons that only come on Sunday morning. And I really was in shock. I, I looked at him, I said, what? He said, yeah, we have several. That's the only time they come. And, you know, just my tongue running before my mind, I guess, just blurted out, said, how'd they become deacons? He said, oh, it was one of those things where people thought they were just good, good men, and surely if we appoint them and they realize that now I'm a deacon, that that they'll step up and they'll start being faithful. Well, that's completely against God's will. That man was never qualified to be a deacon to begin with. And guess what? You violate God's plan and things don't work out well. That's true in every aspect of life. Please get this simple point as it is indirectly made here in the Scriptures. The office of a deacon is not the place for a man to mature. It'll probably destroy his faith because you're asking more of him than what his faith can endure. When a man is mature in his faith, I do not mean he will stop growing. But when he's not a novice, when he's mature in his faith, he knows what he believes and he's holding it in a pure conscience. He's devoted to God. Then he's ready to be a deacon. Then he'll be an asset to the work of the church. Then he'll be a great example to the other members. Then he'll shed the right example, the right light out to the community but only then. And if we get that out of order, we truly, truly have the cart before the horse. And it ends up hurting the Lord. It ends up hurting the church. And it ends up hurting that individual. No one has benefited. Let's notice the seventh one as we go now to the end of verse 10. They were tested, then let them serve as deacons. But notice he says, being found blameless. 
Now, this is one that kind of throws us for a loop sometimes because is it the idea that a man has to be perfect? If that's the case, there'd be no deacons because no one is perfect. And then we consider the only perfect man that's ever walked on this earth, and he was blamed many times, but he was perfect. But then we have to get some grasp on the understanding of what this might be when we think about Peter. He was guilty and blamed for denying Jesus Christ, but yet... Do you remember that later he fulfilled these qualifications of an elder that must be blameless? That man must be blameless. And by 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, he was serving as an elder. Friends, if my understanding of blameless is that a man never does anything wrong, I've totally misunderstood the teachings of blameless. Blameless is they are not to be blamed now. All of us have sins in the past. The question is, for any man that's being considered to be a deacon, has he repented of those sins? Has he separated himself from those sins? Is he today to be blamed for those sins? Now, if in fact the man is still participating in that sin, he is to be blamed and he's not qualified. But if it's a matter of the past that he's already resolved in his life with God and with his church... He then is blameless in that matter. We continue in verse 11 as he speaks about the qualification of a man's wife. The things that he asks of the wife here are things that he would ask of every Christian. He says in 11, likewise, and he says their wives, probably and most likely referring also to the elders' wives as well as the deacons, must be reverent. That's the same word that he began with the deacons back up in verse 8. It's the idea of grave or living a life worthy of respect. A deacon's wife must live a life that individuals can respect, honest and honorable. Notice the second thing, not slanders. Remember the second thing that he said to the deacon dealt also with his tongue. And now he talks again about the tongue, this time the tongue of the wife. It's so important that we realize the danger of the tongue. You know, James, the third chapter, teaches how much danger the little member of the tongue can do. Friends, it's bad if any of us live a life of gossiping and slandering one another. But if that moves into the leadership of the church, unity is destroyed. A great heartache and great pain is the result of tongues that are out of control. So whether it's the man or if it's his wife, if they cannot and do not control their tongue, they're not qualified to be a deacon. We read on temperate. It's the idea still in verse 11 of sober, of clear thinking. Finally, the conclusion for the wives is this. It's very general. Faithful in all things. The way she lives in her home, the way she lives in the community or a workplace, the way she lives in her church, is she faithful in all things? Now, a man himself may fulfill all of the other qualifications that deal with him personally, but if his wife does not fulfill these qualifications, He's not qualified to be a deacon. It's a part of the qualifications. Now notice the ninth thing that he mentions in verse 12. Let deacons be husbands of one wife. This tells us that the deacon must be a man. And then this tells us that he must have only one wife. 
He is a one-woman man is another way that it has been stated. It shows us there that he's married and it shows us that he is committed and faithful in that marriage. You remember back earlier in the qualifications of the of the elders. Remember up in verse 4 when he told about how a man rules his own house? In verse 5, he places in parentheses this description. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If a man cannot be faithful to his wife, and if he cannot take care of his wife and children, why would we ever expect that he could take care of the Lord's family. That's what he's getting into as he says the rest of verse 12 here. He said the husband of one wife, then he says, ruling their children and their own houses well. This probably doesn't happen often, but I've heard of it happening. When a man's family says, you better not appoint daddy. You don't know what he's like at home. Unless there's proof that that child is lying, you better not appoint daddy. One of the qualifications is that he has to rule his house well. And if he can't go behind closed doors and conduct himself as a faithful Christian husband and father, He has no business having that kind of influence over God's family. Notice the summary. It's not really a qualification, I don't guess, but it does tell us the importance of serving well. It's how we ended this morning and we'll end again this way. Look at verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Those who have served well. It's a good standing, bold in the faith. But oftentimes we we discuss, what does it mean good standing? Well, surely it means that they have good standing with God. I really believe God is very grateful for men that are willing to serve in His church. And so if they serve well, if they serve faithfully, they have a good standing before God. But I know you and I have seen in the life of this church, family, they also have good standing In the church, we truly appreciate our deacons. We appreciate each man that's given time out of his life and out of his family's life and he's sacrificed simply to serve us. Good standing. It's a good thing. It's a good way to invest our life and our time and our energy. Not everybody has to do it. We can get to heaven never being an elder or deacon. But if we are going to be elders or deacons, or elders' wives or deacons' wives, we need to make sure that we do it well. I don't know if a man can go to heaven and not be a faithful deacon, if in fact he's a deacon. This evening, will you commit right now to praying daily for the leaders of this church, especially as we are about to appoint new deacons in the weeks to come? 
Friends, this is important. We're not talking about some small, insignificant thing. We're talking about the life of this church and, and what will have a great, great impact on the future of this church. We're talking about lives and we're talking about souls and we're talking about simply trying to do things God's way. That's all we want to do. It's not about a popularity vote. It's not about who we love the most. It's about wanting God's will to be done. Let's be prayerful about that. Tonight we extend an invitation. How's your life with God? Have you served well? Whatever capacity that God has given you in your abilities and in your life, have you served well? Can we stand before God right now and do you think you'd hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant? If not, don't leave here tonight without making your life right. In other words, don't leave here tonight without being blameless. We've all had sins in the past, but we can be forgiven and we can stand blameless tonight. You need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of sins or if you have and have strayed and you need to come back home, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we